how does your, is your pulse race between roll between run 168 and 169? Another run? <laughs> <laughs> After 215, doesn't get bored. 216? Maybe 216? <laughs> I'm struggling with my yet to her. Um, I can feel myself losing. I want to teach you about uh, the Torah subject tonight, but I talking about the limits of logic. Um, I'll just I'll just shove your brains a little bit. A man comes into the hotel lobby and he goes up to the desk and he says, uh, "I'd like a room for the night." And the clerk says, well, sir, I have to tell you that all our rooms are occupied. All our rooms are occupied. So the guy says, oh, gosh, all your rooms are occupied, so uh, I guess I'll have to look elsewhere. And the clerk says, no, no, it's really not a problem. We can give you a room. So the guy says, listen, I don't want to move anybody, you know, I throw anybody out of the hotel. It's not, uh, it's not fair. They got here first, and I'm looking for a room. I'll go elsewhere. Clerk says, no, sir. It's not about, we are full, but we'll make you a room anyway. So he says, yeah, how, how are you going to do that? He says, did you notice the title of the hotel outside? Yeah, it says Infinity Hotel. You know, like there's a car called Infinity, and there's channels called Infinity. No, sir, we mean it. This is the Infinity Hotel. We have an infinity of rooms. For every number, there's another room. There's room 268, and there's room 4,964,752, and there's room 42,745,746,563,941. For every number, there's another room. So the guy says, so what? You're full up, right? I mean, I don't care how many rooms you have. All of them are occupied. So the clerk says, you're right, but it, it, it's not a problem. Watch. I'm just going to ask the person in room number one to move into room number two. And the person in room number two will move into the room number three. And the person in room number three will move into room number four. Can you guess where room number four is going to go? Got it. Room number five. I'll every, everybody move up one room. And then room number one will be empty for you. No problem. And he gives him the key, and that's what he does. Now, is that, is that really possible? <laughs> the hotel was full. Every room was full. And suddenly, miraculously, they have another room. Just move everybody up one. So if, if the shear gets boring, you can think about that instead. <laughs> just to uh, twist your brains a little bit. That's courtesy of David Hilbert, who was one of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century. Of course, that isn't what made him great. <laughs> Not that little puzzle, but it's a nice puzzle. Uh... We look at the world through the eyes of the Torah. What does the Torah tell us about logic, about our logic? What can we expect to understand? What can't we expect to understand? How far can we expect human logic to go? At all? Can we trust human logic at all? Can we trust it for everything? Where would be a cutoff point to say that logic can't be trusted anymore? Or just beyond its abilities altogether. 
is a large subject. I don't know if I'll finish it tonight. It depends upon how uphill I have to run against your flack. Um, but we'll see how far we can get. By the way, I just, someone gave me a subscription to a word a day, which is a email service where they send you out new words. The word flack, the first meaning of the word flack really is journalism. The second meaning is scattered fire, you know, about which you might get hurt. I was really surprised. Of course, they now sounds to me like the two, the two meanings are very closely related. <laughs> okay. Uh, everybody knows that God is beyond our ability to really understand. The word really there is not a throwaway. God is infinite, beyond conception, beyond understanding, beyond description. Surely, our logic stops before we reach God. Similarly, the human soul being literally a piece of God on high, whatever that means, not really a piece, not really on high, but essentially similar to God in some respects, also has infinite depth, and we expect our logic to run out before we fully understand the human soul. Similarly, the Torah, the Torah, in a certain sense, is God's idea. It's God's idea with which, or for which, in terms of which, the world is created. And since it's His idea, it shares His infinite depth. And therefore, the Torah has layers upon layers upon layers, which stretch without limit. And therefore, human logic, human mind is going to run out before we get a full grasp of the Torah. So here are certain absolute limits. But if you listen very carefully, you heard that I put qualifiers in. Like, completely, or really. We can't really completely, fully understand God or understand the soul or understand the Torah. That doesn't mean we can't have any understanding. It just means we can't get to the bottom. But it certainly leaves open and it certainly is true that some kind of understanding is appropriate. Let's see what kind of understanding is appropriate. In fact, what kind of understanding the Torah itself says is appropriate, because without this understanding, the Torah itself cannot stand. The Torah itself cannot function. You see, you can only appreciate a limit from both sides. When you have a fence, you appreciate what the fence does if you can see everything up to the fence and then know that there's stuff beyond the fence that you can't get to. If you don't know everything up to the fence, you don't know really what the fence is doing. We're now on this side of the fence. Let's see how far we can go up to the fence. The Torah starts out as a system of, a system of law. There are laws. First of all, it's a pretty big system. And it's complicated system. No, if you're going to have laws that people are going to live by, somebody has to study this. Somebody has to understand this. Learn it. If the Torah didn't give us any credit for understanding, then to start off with a system of law would be ridiculous. You don't give laws to squirrels not even to chimpanzees. You only give laws to a creature that's capable of understanding the laws. 
And if it's a complicated set of laws, then you are crediting that creature with considerable intelligence. So by giving us a complicated set of law, God is telling us, you have the intelligence to understand this, understand it correctly. That's what I'm giving you to this way. Secondly, in order to apply law, you have to know what the real world is to which you're applying. Law says when you're confronted with a situation like this, do that. But if you can't tell when in the world you're coming across a situation like this, you'll never know when to do that. So, the simplest example is, on Yom Kippur, you're supposed to fast, unless fasting will be uh, dangerous to your health. Now, I, I don't know how to define exactly how much danger is danger, but the law defines it. It says, fast unless you're under in this much danger of health. That's great, but how am I supposed to know how to, how to fulfill that law if I can't tell what your medical situation is? Somebody has to be able to figure out that someone with my medical situation is in such and such amount of danger of, is, of risking yourself by fasting. So the way you follow this law is you go to the doctor first and you have him do an examination and you say, hey, listen, tell me in medical terms what is the danger to my health that will be caused by fasting. Then you take that doctor's report to the rabbi and say, listen, Here's what medical science says about the danger to my health. What does Allah say about that much danger? But if we didn't have the intelligence and the information to assess the medical situation, we would never know how to put the law into practice. So the Torah, in giving us a system of law, assumes that we have both the ability to understand the law and also the ability to analyze the real world to understand its conditions so as to be able to apply the law to real conditions. If we didn't have that intelligence, then giving us the system of law would be absolutely ridiculous. You with me so far? Now, of course, this does not mean we're infallible. Everything human beings do is fallible. Everything individually human being does it could be wrong, and everything that groups of human beings could do could be wrong. But as I have told many of you on many occasions, the fact that you could be wrong is always true and always uninteresting. It's a throwaway. To say that you could be wrong is just to say that you're not God, and I suppose that's not news. Of course you could be wrong. The crucial question in practice is, do I have any positive reason to think I'm wrong? And if not, then I proceed as if I were right. And the Torah is obviously crediting us with the intelligence to get it right the vast majority of time, of the time. So that's one area in which the Torah does credit human logic. Second, the Torah, Maimonides says this twice, um, recommends, recommends that we analyze the reasons for the commandments. We should analyze them. Search out. Try to figure out what the reasons are for the commandments. Whatever that project is, I'm going to talk instantly about what it is, Whatever that project is that the Torah recommends, that we analyze the reasons for the commandments, it obviously is presupposing we have the ability to do so. Now let's think about this. The reasons for the commandments. Let's start with God's commandments. God said, leather boxes, 20 minutes a day. Um, no linen and wool in your garments. Um, in the spring, in the springtime, one evening eat crackers. I mean, all sorts of rules. All sorts of rules. Cities of refuge. Now, the Torah is telling us we should try to apply our logic 
our minds to figure out reasons for those commandments. No, these are God's commandments. These are His orders for us. How in heaven's name are we supposed to figure out what His reasons are for these rules? Are we really supposed to psych out God? I don't know. Do we talk? Do they talk that way anymore? Is that a phrase that's used? Now? Figure out what God has in mind. Aren't we a bit distant from that? Hard enough for us to figure out most of the time why other people do things. <laughs> Right? let alone figure out why the creator of the universe told us to do these things. So what kind of project is this? I think I've mentioned to some of you, the only conceivable way to have information about God is... No. Say again? Yeah. If he tells you. The only conceivable way to have information about God is if he tells you. You are not going to figure it out. This is not a research project. We don't want an Einstein over here. Nope. I don't know if you got anything about God. If you something about the world, that the world didn't, doesn't exist on its own, but that's all. Everything else was props, was Ruach HaKodesh. Chazam HaMashman, that way in the Rambayim says it explicitly. So, what does it mean? The Torah is recommending to us that we should analyze the reasons for the commandments. Now, I'll tell you how it works. It works like this. Suppose God says in one place, do A. A rule? Do A. Suppose in another place, God says B is very important. B is a value. B should be promoted. Those are the two things God says. Do A on the one hand, and B is very important. It should be promoted on the other hand. Suppose now I can see. Oh, God, ABC. Terrible. I'm terrible. I realize it's apparent to me that by doing A, B is promoted. It's visible to me that there's a connection between A and B. Then it is fair for me to say that part of the reason, or one of the reasons, that God commanded A was to promote B. How can I say that? Because I don't have to figure out what God wants. He told me what He wants. He told me He wants B. And He told me to do A. And it's apparent that by doing A, you promote B. So putting A and B together, we can conclude that part of the reason Part of it is very important here. Not the whole reason. Part of the reason for commanding A is to promote B. Because God himself is on record that he wants to be promoted. And by doing A, you in fact promote B. That much we can do. And in all of the books that offer reasons for the commandments, and there are many. There's the book of, ed- what's called the book of education, Sefer Chinuch, goes through all 613 and gives reasons for all the commandments. And uh, the commentaries have many, many more reasons for commandments. All of them, this is the single pattern for all of them. Take something you know God is interested in, and take some rule that he, that he commanded to be performed, put the two of them together, and see that the one promotes the other, and you draw the conclusion that this is part of the reason for the commandment. Yeah. There's a lot of missiles that I perform I'm sure a lot of people that like, I don't really know why I'm doing it. I just do it because I'm told that this is what you're supposed to do. Is that a sign of weakness or a sign of strength that you're doing it because you believe it? This is what God told you to do, even though you haven't spent all the time like going into the Mitzvah. It's both. It's both weakness and strength. It is strength to know that the mere fact that God commanded it is reason enough to do it. But it is weakness since God himself encourages you to go beyond mere obedience and to analyze and investigate the reasons for the commandments. If you haven't yet done that, you have not yet done something that God recommends that you do. So there's a weakness there. And the real reason, which I was going to come to in a moment, but since you asked it, the real reason is that if you do what the mitzvah says to do without any understanding, you're not fully 
doing it. Because part of doing it is doing it with your mind. And your mind is not online. Only your arms and legs are online. Right? And the goal is to put all of you online. To bring all of you into the action. So the more you understand, the more of you is involved in the action. Well, the Midrash says that Solomon figured out all except one. Right. And if you continue reading in the Midrash, it says, but Moses knew that one. So they all have some level of meaning. And the Midrash goes on to say that when the Messiah comes, all Jews will have all that information. And there's a difference between understanding all of a mitzvah and understanding certain parts of a mitzvah. Even in that mitzvah, Solomon was missing one part, but other parts do have, uh, do have meanings. So, uh, it, there's always something that can be understood, and there's always more that can be understood. Are you not supposed to do You're supposed to do in the absence of understanding, if that's where you are. In other words, if you know what you're supposed to do, and you do not yet know how to understand it, then indeed, you're supposed to be prepared to do even without understanding. But, if you are capable of both, there's no point in saying, listen, it says I'll do before I'll understand. I'll put off understanding for a year. I'll give myself a year to just do it without understanding. No, that would not be appropriate. As soon as you can understand, you should understand. Indeed, you have many uh, great Jewish scholars who as little children mastered vast, vast amounts of Torah knowledge. By the time they became 13 and they started doing the mitzvahs for real, they knew a great, great deal about all of the mitzvahs. They didn't lose anything thereby. What's that? There are times when, if you happen not to have understanding, if you happen to be that way, then you should do the mitzvah anyway. True. But there's no benefit to specifically doing without... I won't look in the book, so I'll do it without understanding for a month, and I'll have that great virtue, and then I'll look in the book. No, if you've got time to look at the book, look at the book now. So that during the next month you do it with understanding. It's better to do it with understanding than without. Just if you don't happen to have it, so then you shouldn't be, you should be paralyzed by that. You should be prepared to go ahead. Now, I stress part of the meaning, because if you don't understand the part of, you can fall into a terrible trap. A trap into which, I shouldn't say fall, people who, who end up in this trap jump in on purpose. But it's a trap nonetheless. You'll talk to people who are enamored of cheeseburgers and enamored of pork. And they will tell you, why does the Torah prohibit pork? Oh, that's easy. You see, pork is unhealthy. And uh, the Torah wanted to keep Jews healthy. So it said you need pork. Now, you know what's coming next, don't you? But we know how to protect the pork today. If you boil it, you kill the trichinosis, and then it's not unhealthy anymore. And since the Torah was interested in health, so there's no reason why we shouldn't eat pork today. Isn't that ABCs? Yes, even a six-year-old can understand it, and a seven-year-old can outgrow it. I was raised on this. First of all, it's absurd. It's absurd to suggest that the Torah's reason for prohibiting pork was health. There is no reference to such a reason anywhere in Torah literature, at least so far as I have read. I've never come across such a reason for prohibiting pork, first of all. Second of all, what are we supposed to understand for these people? Moses is an empirical scientist, and he did tests. Pork in the mountains, and pork in the plains, and pork in the seashores, pork with a rice diet, and pork with a grain diet, and pork with a, with a, with a seashell diet, and pork with a, with, a, with a high fruit diet, pork for the old and the young and for the men and for the women, pork eaten by different races. He came out with a controlled experiment that pork causes diseases more statistically than the other parts of the diet. That's absolute baloney. No other group claimed or discovered that pork is unhealthy. No group imitated us if it were such a matter of health and learned from us that it's unhealthy. It's an absolute fairy tale to think that the reason for prohibiting pork is uh, that it's unhealthy. Of course, 
we now know, we now know that by 98 pigs, the health of Jews was preserved for all those centuries and millennia. And since the Torah is interested in people's health, it is appropriate to conclude that, now with the right words, health is part of, part of the reason for the prohibition, but only part of. There is no ability to conclude that it's the totality of the reason. It's just part of it. Because it gave us that benefit and we know the Torah wants people to be healthy. So today that you could preserve your health and still eat pork, there's no reason to, uh, to say that pre- eating pork is appropriate because we don't know about the rest of the reason. And therefore, you cannot conclude that, we can, that, the, that the mitzvah is outdated. You can only conclude it if you make the logical mistake of thinking that you have the whole explanation. So all of the research that we do into Ta'ameh HaMitzvot, which is loosely translated as the reasons for the commandments, all of the research we're doing is gaining partial information about the values created by doing the mitzvot, but not the original intention or implication of performing the mitzvah in the first place. Are you with me? Furthermore, sometimes the the dimension in which you have to search for values of the mitzvot is a dimension that is not obvious in our world altogether. Sorry? I'm, I'm going to illustrate. Um, I have mentioned this, this to some of you in the past. If a person loses a parent, and should say, should leave the davening for the sake of, during the 11 months after the death of the parent. Now, uh, that usually is done during the week, not on Shabbos, not on holidays, but during the week. Let's say you're in a shul and there are many people who have lost parents and they need to take turns leading the prayers. There are 18 prayers a week. Let's suppose there are 18 people and they're dividing it up and you got a shot for one out of the 18. Which would you think would be the best? If you had the shot, for whatever reason, pick first. Which would be the best of the 18 prayers for you to lead? The most important, the most impressive, the most valuable. No, no, no. I mean, what you're going to do is lead the whole prayer from beginning to end. Either Shachris or Mincha or Ma. Oh, so he says, because he knows something, Shachris on a Monday or Thursday morning, you have the reading of the Torah then. You take out the Torah, there's... Uh, there's more, more things to do, more things to say. That would be a more impressive time, but it's not correct. Maybe leading up to Shabbat and entering in Shabbat. Nope. Now, Shabbos doesn't count. You don't do it on Shabbos, you don't do it on, on holidays. And many say that you don't do it on, on, uh, on uh, Rosh Hashanah. We don't do it on Rosh Hashanah. So you know, you've got somebody who knows something. Myri Motzi Shabbos, Saturday night Myri. Man, that is very counterintuitive. Why would that? First of all, it's Myri. There's less in Myri, there's no Chazar, there's no Kedusha, no nothing. Just Myri. So listen to the answer. The 11 months, the reason the person leads the prayers for the 11 months is because the soul of that parent could be judged and could be punished for 11 months. Could be. And he, by doing mitzvahs, is trying to do something for that soul. On Shabbos, no judgment and no punishment takes place. In the next world, it's off. Saturday night, the souls go back to the position of judgment and punishment. And as they are assuming that position, as they're sliding into that position, anything that can be done for a soul at that moment has maximum benefit for that soul. That's why this is the best time to lead the prayers. And second best, 
on the same grounds is Marv the rest of the week. Because from daytime to nighttime, there's an intensification of the judgment, an intensification of the punishment, and if the soul is sliding into that lower position, any mitzvah that can be done for that soul is a maximum benefit for that soul. Which means, if you are looking for the reason for this custom, you're not going to find it in disworldly terms. It just isn't there. It isn't there. That's not where to look. When I was an awful ten years ago, and I read this, it had a tremendous impact on me because it reminded me that I'm not just following rules. I'm not just performing actions. I'm really connected to those souls. And what I do here has an impact there. And the impact there is what determines why I do what I do here. So if you cut off that dimension, you're cutting off a whole dimension of meaning, a whole dimension of value, a whole dimension of importance, which can give reasons for the things that we do. At any rate, that's the second level, the second level of application of intelligence that the Torah credits us with, the ability to research and analyze and understand some of the reasons for the commandments that we perform. Yeah. But is, is logic limited to a person's to a person's extent of knowledge? Are you limited as a newcomer to Judaism? Are you limited as opposed to someone who's been involved since a young age? Who's, I, I would think naturally. Of course. Yeah. Of course. If you, if you decide at the age of 23 to start studying botany, you didn't know the difference between a, uh, a, a petunia and a, and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a rose, you would have a uphill battle. You know, you have to really work at it to, to put yourself in a position. Of course, your logic is, is absolutely limited by his fund of information. Some of the most awful errors have taken place by people who speculated on the basis of informa- inadequate, inadequate information about what makes the world work. I would say we're always limited. We're always limited. When we are doing mitzvahs, we are still who we are. We only bring to the mitzvah the resources that we have. Everything we do is limited. I, don't, I wouldn't say we're, we're ever totally unlimited. Okay, now, third thing. The Torah gives us descriptions of God. Characteristics of God. Okay, some of you know from me that there really aren't any characteristics of God. We've been through that. We talk about what he does, not what he is. I'm not, I'm not going through that tonight. But the characteristics that we are given often, <laughs> often need the application of intelligence to understand them. Otherwise... Otherwise, we can make drastic mistakes in trying to understand what they are. Here's one that I have shared with some of you a while ago, but I see a lot of new faces. And Mr. Elizabeth, I have it, so it's a review that's worthwhile to keep in mind. Um, among other things, we say that God is all-powerful. supposed to mean, I guess, God can do anything. Well, that's that's not really true. It's just not true that God can do anything. There are things God can't do. And indeed, I think we'll all agree on it, and we'll agree that it should be so. For example, uh, God cannot learn something new. We can learn something new. Learning something new is a real ability. We have it. Every one of us has it. There's no, no contradiction in learning something new, no absurdity in learning something new, not, nothing undefined in learning something new. It's a perfectly plain, sensible ability that every human being has. But God doesn't have it. He can't do that. 
or God can't make a mistake. Even though every one of us can do that. Or God can't improve. Even though every one of us can prove, can improve, improvement is a perfectly sensible idea with no contradiction involved. Perfectly comprehensible, it's a genuine ability, and God doesn't have that ability. Yeah. Um, I'm coming to that, although I was going to put, intervene in something a little more tricky. Uh, can God commit suicide? I'm coming to that, but that's a different category. Now, here, although it may not be quite as obvious as what I said before, Jewish philosophers will tell you that God cannot commit suicide either. Why? Because to commit suicide means to cease to be. And God can't cease to be because his being, his existence is necessary. It's not an accident. A thing can cease to be only if its being is accidental. It doesn't have to be. It just happens to be. And just as it happens to be, it could happen to not be. <laughs> or it could happen to stop being. But God's existence is necessary in and of itself. And therefore, suicide is not, not an option, as they say. Now, all these examples... Yeah? Say again? Of course. No human being is necessary. And that's why we all die. And that's why we're all created. To be necessary means you weren't created. Because if you were necessary, you wouldn't need to be created. Um, now, all these examples have one thing in common. They have one diagnosis. All of these abilities are symptoms of imperfection. Only an imperfect being can learn something new. How come he can learn something new? Because he doesn't know everything already, right? And that's a weakness. How can he make, make a mistake? Because he doesn't have perfect control. How could he improve? Because he isn't already perfect. All these abilities are symptoms of imperfection. What we really ought to have said is that God has all the powers that a perfect being has. If there are powers that go together with imperfection, of course God doesn't have them. The bottom line is that God is perfect. All powerful is just a way of saying he has all the powers that a perfect being has. There are certain powers which are symptoms of imperfection, which, of course, we want to deny that God has. Because he's perfect. Are you with me so far? Okay. That's the easy half. Now it comes the hard half. I know it's 9, 10. Screw on your thinking cap. These are cases where I will positively tell you that God cannot do these things. I'm making a positive statement that he cannot do these things. Then there's another category. I'll state the category, I'll give you examples, and then I'll come back and state it again, because I want it to be understood clearly. There are categories where, when I describe the thing to be done, I contradict myself in the description. If I contradict myself in the description, then it won't be correct to say God can do it, and it won't be correct to say God cannot do it. It won't be correct to say anything at all. It'll be time just to keep quiet. Because there's no it. If I contradict myself in describing the it to be done, I have not described any it to be done. And then the question of whether God can do it or not doesn't even arise. I haven't provided it. Here's some examples, just to give you the flavor of the idea. Um, God has challenged me to a game of chess. 
but because he's a much better player than I am, he's giving me a handicap. He's playing with only his king. I have all my pieces, and he has only his king. Okay, query. Can he checkmate me? Okay, look, we know I have a tremendous advantage, but he's God, you know. He's God playing with the king. Can he checkmate me? Now, we certainly don't want to say yes, do we? Even though it's God. Can God correctly uh, spell the English word table with four letters? Can God divide two into five correctly without remainder? You get a, an exam booklet in college with, with pages of, of, of questions. Page one, question number one says, copy the paragraph from page six onto your answer paper. So you turn the page, the booklet, and you notice that the last page in the booklet is page number five. What do you do now? Can God pass this exam? Okay, how much, how good is your English literature? But we're talking about God, infinite God. Can God pass this exam? The answer, of course, is there's no exam here. The questions are incoherent. There's no question of passing and there's no question of failing. God won't pass the exam and God won't fail the exam. There is no exam to talk about. Same thing's true with checkmate with the king only. That's a non-position in chess. The same with the other examples. The Rambam and the, Ra and the, and the Malbim and others say, we do not assert that God can make a square circle. Why? Not because it's too hard for God. We've finally found his limits. We can finally throw a line and say, up here, God, but no further. It's rather that when we say square circle, we're not drawing any line at all. We're just not making sense. When you set up a test for someone, there are two phases. Number one, defining the test, and number two, seeing whether he can pass the test. If phase one is not conducted correctly, you never get to phase two. Phase one is to define the test. If you, in defining the test, contradict yourself, you have not posed the test. If you haven't posed the test, then the question of passing or failing the test never arises. It's a little bit like this. This is just an analogy, and then I'll come back and finish this. Uh, we have a portrait painter, and uh, this guy's uh, rumored to be the best portrait painter in the history of painting. He could paint anyone realistically, portray his character, any person, man, woman, or child, any of the races. We have different facial expressions and different uh, bone features in their face. He could do everybody. So a critic says, oh, you can do everybody, right? Well, I want a realistic picture of Santa Claus. So they say, uh, <laughs> come on, you know, I mean, that's ridiculous. And he says, oh, I see. You're hemming and hawing, aren't you? You're wheedling out of it, aren't you? You see, he can't. You say he can't paint a picture of Santa Claus? There's his limitation. He can't paint a picture of Santa Claus. That's ridiculous. There is no, I hope I'm not, I'm not breaking your heart. You know, there is no Santa Claus to paint. And since there's no Santa Claus to paint, it's a limitation on him that he can't paint Santa Claus. In fact, it's not true that he can't paint Santa Claus. Well, then he can paint Santa Claus. The question doesn't arise because the word Santa Claus don't refer to a person to be painted. There is no potential here to be painted. It's not a test to say, can you paint Santa Claus? It's only a test to say, can you paint X? Where X is a real person. Here, too, to ask, can God make a square circle or not, is not to ask a question. It's incoherent. Because the question, the person putting the question has contradicted himself in expressing the question. So, when someone asks, can God do X, you must be very careful to check that there's no contradiction, maybe very deeply implicit in X. Because if there's a contradiction there, then you have to disqualify the question. Don't say he can't. Don't say that he can't. Just refuse the question. So it is with square circle. So it is with 
creating another God. Created God is a contradiction, just as bad as square circle. Because God implies perfection, and perfection means self-sufficient, not dependent upon another. Implies being self-sufficient, not dependent upon another. And created is a dependency. So I will not say that God can create another God. And I will not say that he cannot create another God. I will merely point out that create another God is a square circle. Contradiction. And the same is true for that old chestnut that's usually discovered in your sophomore year after the third beer at about one in the morning. Can God create a stone too heavy for him to lift? And the person asking the question says, listen, I've got you either way. Because if he can't create it, it's something he can't do. And if he can create it, then he can't lift it. It's something else he can't do. Time for the cheeseburgers. <laughs> but the correct response is to point out that rock too heavy for God to lift is a square circle. Rock too heavy for God to lift? God who can lift anything? So it becomes a rock so heavy that he can't lift it even though he can lift it. Which is a contradiction. So the correct response is I will not say that he can create such a rock and I will not say that he cannot create such a rock. Neither expression is, is appropriate because such a rock is a contradiction and therefore the question of creating it or not doesn't arise. Notice the difference between this and the first category. These two categories are very different. In the first category, we positively assert that God cannot do various things. God cannot learn something new. God cannot improve. There, the ability we're talking about is perfectly consistent. Learning things new is something that's perfectly consistent. Every one of us can do it. Uh, Improving is perfectly consistent. Every one of us can do it. There we are asserting we're on record that God cannot do these things. Why? Because only imperfect things can do these things. And God is perfect. In the second category, the description of, these, of the test is itself a contradiction. Since it's a contradiction, we do not assert that God can, and we do not assert that God cannot. We refuse to address the question because it's not a coherent question. Questions up to you. Yeah. So you would say that God goes, God goes beyond the limits of our logic. I don't follow where in what I said you'd get that conclusion. No, I'm kind of tied up with your. Uh... Yeah. Well, not here. Not here. As far as I can tell. Here, what I'm saying is, maybe the way you're putting it means I have to. I have to just add one more, one more sentence here, one more uh, application. The limits of logic are not like other limits. The limits of, of the laws of nature are physical limits. We are limited by the laws of nature. God is not. Limits of energy and power are practical limits that human beings can have. And other, even creatures might have more. And God certainly has unlimited uh, power. Limits of logic are not external limits on the way things are. Limits of logic are internal limits on my making sense when I talk. There aren't limits in the world, there are limits on my talk. If I disobey the laws of logic, then I don't make sense, period. There's nothing to do with the power of somebody else to do something. To say that he's limited, that he can't make a square circle, it's like saying the painter is limited because he can't paint Santa Claus. That's not a limitation on the painter. There's no such limitation on painters that they can or cannot paint Santa Claus. That doesn't express a limitation on him at all. Because the person saying it has made a mistake. To make a limit on a painter, you have to identify some object to be painted and see if you can paint it. If you, in your statement, don't identify an object to be painted, you have not succeeded in describing a limitation on a painter. If I make a mistake in logic, and when I, when I speak then I have failed to describe a limitation in the world. It's my failure, not the world's failure, not God's failure. It's my failure. So you say that God can take 
Yes, the, uh, as long as my description is consistent, then we expect God to be able to f- fulfill it, except when it's in- incompatible with perfection. Yes. So when I fail, when I fail to be consistent, then, then uh, no limitation has been expressed. Except for these characteristics that we were talking about earlier, do we find any other examples of these kinds of things in the Torah? No, I mean, except for all powerfulness, you know, other, other kinds of... the descriptions of characteristics uh, which we described... Well, I've been just working now on being all-powerful. There are other characteristics of God, and each one needs its own analysis. Each one needs its own analysis, yeah. You said the reason behind the rock is because God can do anything. That's why, so, right? Good, good, good. Go ahead. So, but if you said before, though, that God can't do everything. Yeah. So, do you see my question? Yeah, okay. Uh, and I could even make it worse. I'm waiting for somebody to ask this question. Let, let's go back over the rock again. Um, a rock too heavy for God to lift. Now, this is going to be a little complicated. What can I tell you? But you have the tape sheet. You can go back over it a number of times until you get it clear. Um, a rock too heavy for God to lift. I said it's a square circle. Now, let's see why. Let's see why. Why is a rock too heavy for God to lift really a square circle? Well, it's a rock too heavy for God to lift. God, who can lift everything. That's all I said. I didn't say he could do everything. I said lift everything, right? God who could lift everything. It's too heavy for God to lift. God who could lift everything. So, it comes out that this is a rock that's, that God can lift because he can lift everything and he can't lift because it's too heavy. And that's a contradiction. That's what I said. But someone should wonder, am I not doing that awful, awful evil in logic called begging the question? Am I not assuming that God is all-powerful in trying to demonstrate that he's all-powerful? I'm sort of building the fact that he's all-powerful in to make it into a contradiction. Wasn't that precisely what we were arguing about? So how can I do this? How am I allowed to build in that God can lift everything in order to make it into a contradiction when whether or not he can lift everything was precisely the question at issue? Ha! That's very subtle and very wrong. I'll tell you why it's wrong. I didn't give you the full context of the, of the critic. Let's understand how the critic comes in with his rock problem. He says to us, you guys believe that God is all-powerful. You believe he's all-powerful. I'll show you that you're wrong. I'll show you that you cannot maintain your belief that he's all-powerful without contradicting yourself. I will trap you in a contradiction. You're starting with your belief that he's all-powerful. I'll show you that given your belief that he's all-powerful, you're going to contradict yourself. Now, he's going to come out with his razzmatazz. What will my answer be? My answer will be, no, you're wrong. I'll show you how I can start with my belief that he's all-powerful and run it all the way through to the end without contradicting myself. The question at the, in debate is, can I start with all, be God being all-powerful and run all the way to the end without contradicting myself? That's the question. Mimela, when I answer, I'm allowed to use this being all-powerful. The critic's claim is, start there and I'll trap you. My answer is, I'll start there and I won't be trapped. But I'm certainly allowed to start there because that's what his claim was. You start there, you'll be trapped. Now, here's how he goes. You say he's all-powerful, so you tell me, can he create the stone too heavy to lift or not? If you, believing he's all-powerful, say he can, then you will have to admit that he can't lift it, which means you're, you've contradicted yourself. And if you say he can't create it, so there's something else that you have to admit he can't do, so you contradict yourself again. That's the critic's argument. My response is, you're wrong. I'll start with the fact that he can do everything, and I'll show you how I can get all the way to the end without any contradiction. Because I say, he's all-powerful, he can, he can, uh, uh, he's all-powerful, and you ask me about the stone, I will not say that he can create it, and I will not say that he can't create it. And since I will not say either one, you can't trap me. I, you'll ask me, why am I not saying either one? Surely either one or two of the two ought to be correct. The answer is this. 
Let's look at your phrase. Rock's too heavy for God to lift. Now, I'm starting with my belief he's all-powerful. And I'll show you. I'll get all the way to the end without contradicting myself. Because your phrase, rock too heavy for God to lift, is a square circle. It's a square circle on my grounds. On my grounds that God is all-powerful, your phrase is a square circle. Watch. God is all-powerful. I'm starting with my belief. Since God is all-powerful, he can lift anything. Now, this rock, which you're describing then, is a rock which God, who is all-powerful, can lift. And which you say is too heavy for him to lift, so he can't lift it. So your phrase, in my eyes, your phrase is self-contradictory. And therefore, I don't have to answer the question of whether he can lift it or not. So what I have showed is that I can maintain my belief in God's all-powerfulness all the way to the end without contradicting myself. That's all that I was, was necessary to do. So you fill in the whole dialectic of the critique, you understand that this is the way you can answer it. Okay, you see what I'm doing? Yeah. I have a question about uh, miracles, like, for example, the splitting of the Red Sea. Right. Is that kind of goes against, like, the whole... That's kind of like putting a square and turning it into a circle. So can we say that God does have the ability to do any of these impossible things if he so wishes to do them, just that he only does them at certain times uh, very, very rarely for his means? There is an enormous difference between splitting the sea on the one hand, and square circles on the other hand. There's a difference of night and day between the two of them. In square circle, my words contradict my words. You don't even have to take a look at the world. You know, you wouldn't have to go to the bazaars in backwoods India to check. Maybe they have some square circles there. Has anybody ever checked back there for square circles? You know? Or maybe on the deep sea floor where they have in these in hydrothermic vents, you know, where they have these strange creatures which may go all the way back to the beginning of life. Maybe there's some square circles there. Maybe we should check over there. You don't have to do any investigations. You know from speaking English that you're not going to find any square circles in any of those places. Because square and circle as words contradict one another. You follow me? Okay. But a sea splitting and water standing up doesn't contradict any words. You have to take a look at the world and see whether things do that or not. After all, in the United States, in the, in the West, there's a, a geyser of hot water called Old Faithful, and about once an hour, it shoots water into the air. Against gravity. Oh, oh, how about that? You know? And then, of course, if you go underneath, you see it's hot and it's boiling and so on and so on. But this is just a question of looking at the world and seeing the way it happens. There's no reason why gravity had to be the way it is. Gravity could just as well have been only on, on, the, on the six work days and on Shabbos everything floats, right? There's, there's no reason why it had to be that. We open our eyes, take a look at the world, and we observe that that's the way it happens. So to find that something happened contrary to what we have always expected is not a contradiction in words. It contradicts our experience. And indeed, we often learn new things that contradict the experience that we have always had because that's how we discover new things. So uh, there's no, nothing, no connection whatsoever between water rising up spontaneously versus uh, square circles. Square circles is a linguistic contradiction, and the other is a matter of something that doesn't accord with our natural experience of how the world works. Yeah. Since when are we concerned about contradictions in logic when we have an example in the Torah where the Jews at Mount Sinai um, saw the sounds? That, that's a logical contradiction. Um, let me give you an example. You are sitting with Albert Einstein, and he is giving a lecture in China. For this purpose, he has learned Chinese. You don't know Chinese, but he does. And he's explaining relativity to these Chinese scientists. Someone comes over to you and says, uh, do you believe what Einstein is saying? Now, um, do you believe the last thing Einstein just said? Well, um, I, I, I don't speak Chinese, you see, so I, um, I really, I don't know what he said. On the other hand, it's Einstein. Couldn't I say, probably, probably what he said is true, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. 
But probably, since he's Einstein, probably whatever he said is true. You see, I can appreciate the externals of the statement, even without knowing what its meaning is. Because I know who said it, even though I don't speak Chinese. Now, if a very reliable person said to me, uh, I have just purchased a square circle, and I know he's competent English, and he knows I'm competent, and I know him, and he knows me, and so on and so on. I could say, well, I suppose he means something. And whatever he means, I suppose it's true, but I haven't a clue what he means. Because for me, it's just a contradiction. That far I could go. And if the Torah or Hazal say something, which to me is a patent contradiction, what I say is, I don't know what they're talking about, but since they're very reliable people, I'm sure they meant something. And whatever they meant, whatever it means, I'm sure it's true, though I haven't a clue what it means. This, this still does not take me beyond, or anyone, beyond the bounds of logic. The bounds of logic are the bounds of what I can mean. I'm imagining someone who asks me, in my language, in his language, can God create a square circle? No, if he's speaking my language, and I'm speaking his language, and we are supposed to understand one another, then the right thing to do is refuse the question, because he has contradicted himself. If he says, listen, I have a secret meaning you don't know, and I'm asking you, can God create a square circle? I should say, I don't know your meaning. You're telling me you have a secret meaning, and I don't know it. So why are you asking me? Ask somebody else who knows your meaning. Don't ask me. As long as I am limited to contradicting myself, I can't mean anything. And if I can't mean anything, then the, then the right thing to do is to refuse all these questions. Colin? Yeah. Good for you. I, 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 I don't think it means anything. I think it's a mistake. I, and I know what he's quoting. How, within two pages, says that God is above logic and can do whatever he wants. And in the next page, he says, this and this and this, God cannot do. So it all depends upon what you mean by logic. And what I'm telling you is like the one plus one equals one. Right? And as far as we know, that's a contradiction. So that, if I came across a statement like that in the Chazal, what I would say is, it doesn't mean to them what it means to me. Because to me it means a blatant contradiction. It means something else to them. Very good. So whatever it means to them, which will not be expressed in a contradiction, it will be expressed some other way. Maybe I haven't the conceptual resources to appreciate what they mean. Good. But to tell me that these words, understood as I understand them, are supposed to express a proposition that's, that's to be true, that's a mistake. And it's not because he's too weak. It's because the words don't make sense. Any more, I mean, just to make it extreme, any more than you would say, can God blah? So what do you mean blah? I don't mean anything. I just mean blah. Can God blah? No. Ha! See that? See? Something he can't do. It's ridiculous. Right? Blah doesn't mean anything. I, I think that he is making a mistake in a certain passage in Ramchal, and maybe if I have a chance, I'll, it's not, not translated into English, but uh, it's a Mamar al Chochma. And someday maybe, I'll, maybe we'll, I'll, I'll show it to you. Yeah. If I understand right, I'm not sure until, onto the differentiation between, let's say, for example, you and the vowel, to the circle square, is the verbal linguistic um, contradiction. <coughs> I'm not sure how it applies, for example, to the chess game that you mentioned. I don't see any linguistic contradiction, yet you put it on the square circle side. Because there are rules of chess, and those rules define what the game of chess is. And in particular, they define what it is to have a checkmate position. And when you read the rules of chess, you see that with a king alone, within those rules, there's no such thing as a checkmate position. You just need a longer linguistic description. You need the whole thing. Um, matter of uh, the Chazal always being right. Um, in the Gemara itself, he uses the term, te- te- the technological term, uh, to say one in Damarayan has been refuted. And uh, th- if that's so, is that saying when they're refuted that they're, they were wrong in their logic? 
in itself, for example, Derek's um, learning in the second paragraph uh, of Baba Matia. So there's a focus between Abaye and uh, Rava, and in the end, it says to you that Rava has been refuted. So he was, uh, he was wrong in uh, saying that it, something can be Yesh without the person knowing about it on the spot. So can we therefore assume that he, he's wrong in other areas where the Gemara d- didn't catch it? Or not. Or am I misunderstanding the whole idea of a Makrokis where someone's been refuted? Well, this is a big subject. I'll just let me give you the headlines, but uh, this would require a whole hour to do in, in, in appropriate detail. It's not directly related to what I was talking about tonight. Uh, every human being can make mistakes. Every human being. I don't care if he's in the Gemara or out of the Gemara with a group of people in the Gemara. Every human being makes mistakes. Everyone. Everyone. Rabbi Abayi, Rabbi Yochanan, everybody. Rabbi Yudanossi, everybody makes mistakes. Tiyufta means his position is refuted. Correct. We have many times when uh, Tanoim and Amorim will take back positions. They used to say this, they realized it was wrong, and they said that afterwards. There's no question. No one, no one is infallible. No one is infallible. Tiyufta either means that he gave it up, or that the Morris judgment is, had he known this other material, he would have given it up. That's what it means. When the Gemara takes it as it's having been refuted. That's correct. You don't need his being refuted one time to take seriously on other occasions that he might be wrong. Anyone might be wrong. Anyone could be wrong about anything. But, like I said earlier tonight, the possibility of being wrong is always true and always uninteresting. It's always uninteresting because it's always true. The question is, do I have any positive reason to think he's wrong? Now, the Gemara itself comes to the conclusion that the, Rava, that the Gemara is like Rav, except in Yael Kagan, in those six cases, which means the Gemara's judgment is that he's right in all of those cases. There isn't going to be reason enough to think differently when the Gemara comes to that conclusion. Right? But anything could go wrong, but that's just to say that we're all fallible. That's trivial. That's true. Yeah. It means nothing you said about hearing Einstein starting Chinese by the in a press conference in Arafat was speaking in Arabic and in English, then documentation in Arabic and English, and they point to English and say, do you believe that's what Arafat said? Then I think I first have to have a reliable linguist um, see the Arabic, see the English, hear the Arabic, hear the English, and confirm that yes, that is identical before I can in this case, before I can say, yes, I believe that's what he said. I agree with you, but one thing you can do before all of that is to say that it's false. 